all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy for Women, the show about addressing issues of health and wellness from a women's perspective. I am Dr. Allie Brown. I'm here today with my co-host, Dr. Michelle Owens. We are talking about cervical cancer and cervical cancer screening. Cervical cancer used to be the leading cause of cancer death in women, but over the past 40 or so years, it has decreased significantly. It's a great victory of women's health in our country, and we're going to talk all about it. How do we keep it that way? How do we make things even better? Uh, go ahead and call us with any comments or experiences, questions this morning. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or send an email to women at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy for Women from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Southern Remedy for Women. I am here today. I'm Dr. Allie Brown. I'm here with my with my co-host, Dr. Michelle Owens. We are so glad to be here today. We are here to talk about something that's very important to women's health, and that is cervical cancer screening and prevention. January is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. Timeliness alert. So we are going to talk about it. No, this, no better time than this. I have my expert here, Dr. Michelle Owens. She is an OBGYN and specialist in maternal fetal medicine at UMMC. And I am a surgical pathologist. Yes, so I'm sure. We, we occupy all the whole absolutely. gamut of screening. This is one of the opportunities. I, you know, that's why I was laughing. I was like, yeah, they can tell Owens is back on because now, now the giggles have, become, have right. begun. We're just always so happy to see each other I on know, Fridays. Right? It means excited. a lot to us it to really do this does. show. Yeah. It's awesome. And, it's awesome. and I hope that you guys get excited like we do. Um, to hear us like we get excited to get a chance oh, to do this for undoubtedly you guys. everyone's very but, excited but this is awesome because so the so this gives us an opportunity um just as 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 friends and and colleagues to get together to do something but this cervical cancer thing is really a great place where you see um the bringing together of a variety of different um specialties within medicine because this isn't something that kind of is handled in one particular wheelhouse Mm -hmm. like um for example um bringing together me as an OBGYN or people who do women's health care in general um we depend on our pathology colleagues um to help us in this process so it's kind of neat because um this is another uh way that you kind of get to understand how um, important collaboration is amongst physicians and communication. Absolutely. Um, the information that we get from our patients and how we, that information impacts 
the testing that we do and what we what we believe or what we suspect and our approach. And then from there, um, any specimens, samples, biopsies, any of those things would then go over into your world um, for the appropriate analysis. That's right. So much is going on for our patients beyond the actual visit that happens when the patient is in the room with the physician. So, you know, we're thinking about your case um, for far more of a duration than those few minutes that often seemed, unfortunately, in today's day and age can often feel kind of rushed. We hope that it's not. But just know that particularly when you have any sort of testing done, a pap smear, a blood test, anything like that, that uh, your encounter of healthcare is going on after you leave that office yeah, and um, you're moving on down the chain. There's a huge group of folks that are working on, on your healthcare, on keeping you healthy, on making you healthier. Uh, it's, it's really a collaborative team. Indeed. And um, I think that's really a, an important part because, you know, there, people feel um, many different ways about the cost of healthcare, and there's a lot of debate. Um, even in the political arenas about health care costs and, you know, people, why does it cost so much? Well, again, I think one of the difficulties that people may have sometimes is realizing it's not just how much stuff costs, but there's a lot of stuff that you don't see that goes into your health care. Um, and by no means am I an advocate for um, ridiculously expensive or um exorbitant costs in healthcare, um, because I do believe that it's something that is fundamental. I think if you are, if you're a, a country or a group of people, you really should make sure that people have access to healthcare because you want people to be um, healthy or their healthiest so that they can be the greatest contributors to their communities. Um, so I'm all, I'm all on that and, and how we can do that. Um, minimizing costs and without there being a huge financial burden to people, I think is really important. But I think that the the system itself is so complex that it does pose some serious challenges um, in being able to minimize or decrease costs um, and also without compromising quality um, and without compromising, you know, people having the opportunity to get access to the things that they really need and deserve. So, Enough on my, you know, healthcare soapbox. Owens is stepping down from that now. Um, and we can just kind of dive into cervical cancer. And um, so I think it's really interesting because we have, you know, there are times throughout the course of the year that we talk about different types of, of cancers in women. And, um, but this one, uh, it, you know, we start off the year kind of with an awareness about cervical cancer. And I think you said this um either in the toss or, or in, yeah, in the, in the original uh, billboard, just talking about, you know, pap smears and how much of a difference pap smear screening alone has made in detection for cervical cancer. So being able to figure out who's got it, um, making the diagnosis or participate or, or at least screening out those people in whom we need to do more testing to determine a diagnosis. Um, it's made such a big difference. Like when I think of um, the the biggest contributors, um, breakthrough kind of um, whether it's discoveries or applications within medicine, and and there are definitely many. Um, when you look at those that have the m- most influence or impact 
on women's health care. I mean, without question, um, the pap smear is one of those that's always on the list. I mean, some people would say it's at the top. Some people would say top three, some top five, top ten. Um, I mean, if there were a medical hall of fame, so to speak, this would definitely, I think, be a, a first round hall of famer, so to speak. You know, I got to throw a football analogy in there. I'm kind of getting a little remiss because the football season is starting to draw to a close. So um, I'm feeling some kind of way. Yeah, save it for Sunday. Right? <laughs> so, yes, yeah. pap tests rock, right? It's another one of those cancers that's preventable. And I think the thing, it not, it's not only that it, it detects who has cervical cancer more importantly it detects who has the precursor for surgical cervical cancer so getting it before it even actually becomes cancer so when you see a woman who has cervical cancer just like if you see a man or a woman with with colon cancer it's always like extra sad when it's a type of cancer that we currently have a really good screening tool for so we want everyone to know to go on and get screened Yes. Um, And so and here's the thing. So I will be the first to admit that if you follow cervical cancer screening recommendations, um, you know, we've been trying to spend within the medical community a lot more um, time um, focusing on prevention. Um, And so screening is is one of those things. Um, And so it's really important. um, You know, I said it made a big difference in the impact of cervical cancer diagnosis. It saved save lives for women because they've been able to get treatment that was needed in order to save their lives because there are options for curing cervical cancer if it's caught early enough. And and the other thing is if you have precancerous lesions, um, there are definitely ways that you can rid yourself of those precancerous lesions and not have to worry about cancer anymore. Um, but I think as we're focusing on, um, on screening, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about what it takes if you're following this we've been doing a little bit more and so what you'll find is that there are probably you hear more and more recommendations about what's appropriate screening so um i'm going to kick out the number for you guys the number uh to call if you have questions comments or any other information one 877 that's one 877 if you're a call letter person mpb ring give us a ring at mpb um Again, one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. And as always, you can uh, send us an email to women at mpbonline.org. So, um, so we can talk a little bit about cervical cancer screening, but I don't want to put the cart before the horse. And again, so the pap smear is the screening test for cervical cancer. And cervical cancer, well, the, the majority of cervical cancer is actually can be traced back to infection with a virus that is known as the human papilloma virus, or we call H, P as in Peter, V as in victory. So HPV virus. Um, and there are several. So the, the HPV virus is actually pretty interesting. And Dr. Brown, you can chime in at any time because this is like I'm all in your pathology wheelhouse now. Um, but uh, the HPV virus... So all HPV doesn't cause cancer, okay? But there are certain types that we know um, do cause cancer. And the presence of those types, they're called high-risk types, substantially increase the risk of cancer. There's also, um, there are also subtypes of the human papillomavirus that... um, don't cause cancer, but instead can cause benign 
um, diseases or benign conditions. I guess conditions would be a better term than disease. So benign conditions, whether that is um, genital warts is one of them. Um, which is also caused by infection with human papillomavirus um, subtypes. And then also um, our ENT colleagues, the head, neck, ear, nose, and throat folks, um, also know that these can cause lesions in the throat and um, oral lesions um, can be caused by human papillomaviruses um, as well. And interestingly enough, head and neck cancers can also be caused by those high risk or cancer causing uh, HPV subtypes. Yeah, so it's something for men to certainly be concerned with as well. So not only are you a could you be potentially a vector to spread this to the women that you love, but also it can impact you directly through the development of uh, cancer of the oropharynx, which is the the part of the throat that's just between the, mouth the back of the, the mouth and the throat. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the mouth and the throat. So, so that, and I think that's really important because um, we're talking about cervical cancer, but that's just one small part of it, right? So um, the, the larger piece, if we want to take this, you know, more generalizable, um, is that if we prevent the spread of the HPV virus, which actually is a sexually transmitted, sexual transmission is one way that um, HPV virus can be spread. Um, so if we limit transmission of this virus, we will decrease the transmission of these um, these virus particles and we will decrease the conditions that are associated with it. So that's the goal. Um, and... There are lots of different ways that, um, that that can be done, and we'll talk about that. But I just wanted to kind of go back and kind of start from the beginning and just kind of say, well, first of all, you know, cervical cancer, what causes it? Where does it come from? What's the cervix? Maybe some people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's what I was going to say because you know, guys who are not worried about word. I don't have to listen to this because I'm not going to have <laughs> cervical cancer. And you just, like, brought that home real quickly by kind of tying it into yeah, HPV yeah, right. because human papillomavirus is kind of one of those things that guys can get and girls can get. And, you know, HPV, while it may not, while you might not have a cervix, um, it will, it is also, HPV also um, is an important cause of um, cancer of the penis. That's right. So penile cancer, which is the for, number one cause, I would which say. is very rare. Um, but nonetheless, um, is is still significant when it does occur, and it's caused by human papillomavirus. So, so even though we started out just kind of, we're given you know a, a good bit of information related to cervical cancer. This human papilloma, we should have done a human papillomavirus show, but I just don't think that it would have we kind are of right gone now. over the same way. Here it is. But yeah, so. Um, Anyway, guys, one more time, that number, one 877 The phone lines are open. We have kind of kicked off our uh, show talking about cervical cancer. Um, if you want to know about risks and screening and some of the other great information that we have in store for you, stay tuned. Um, we're going to take our first break of the hour, and we'll be back just after this.
MPB listeners pay attention to quality. They look for quality in their work and their daily lives. If your business cares about quality customers, look to MPB. Go to mpbonline.org underwriting for more information. A man named Darling Adelaide Mercado fled Honduras six weeks ago after gangs threatened him. Pueblos Sin Fronteras is an organization that tells a person to join the caravan, but they fool you. They tell you everything is going to be easy. Then you're on the road and it's really hard. Now he's waiting to make his case for asylum in the U.S., questioning whether the journey was worth it. That's this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. Listen again to stories and shows at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, women at mpbonline.org. And welcome back. This is Southern Remedy for Women, the show all about addressing issues of health and wellness from a woman's perspective. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Owens, and I'm here live in the studio with my co-host, Dr. Allie Brown. And we are talking about cervical cancer, cervical cancer awareness, cervical cancer screening, cervical cancer causes. What are your risks? Um, it is one of the more common um, cancers in women, but that little booger, human papillomavirus, um, also is a major player in cancers for both men and women. So if you happen not to be a woman and are tuned in today, this is still a show for you. And so hopefully we'll have some information that um, will be helpful and useful to you and that may hopefully um, be not just beneficial, but maybe even save some lives. And, and on that note, I think I remember you mentioned it actually last week talking about let women being aware that just because they have an evaluation of their, you know, area down there, they have a pelvic exam. Just because you have a pelvic exam. Doesn't mean you had a pap smear. Absolutely. So, um, and I think that's really important. Um, do not make the assumption that just because you've had a pelvic exam that you have had a pap smear. Um, the most common way that I think people are doing pap smears now are liquid based, that thin prep type pap smear. And so what happens, ladies, is you actually have a speculum um, placed into the vagina. The cervix is visualized. And then there are two uh, separate um, ways that we sample the cells of the cervix because the cervix, so there's a portion of the cervix that is visual uh, from uh, with the speculum exam. So you can see a part of the cervix, but you can't see the whole cervix. So there's a portion of the cervix that actually is behind the vagina that is in continuum with the body of the uterus. And so um, there is uh, the outside of the cervix and then the entranceway into the cervix that goes into the endometrial canal, they're made of different types of cells. So when you have a pap smear done, we actually sample both types of cells. So we sample the cells on the outside, and then there's a, a small brush 
that is used to sample those cells that line the inside of that opening to the cervix or the endocervical canal. Um, And those tend to be glandular cells, um, which are different from the epithelial cells on the outside of the cervix. So, um, So you get the spatula part that's done, which takes the sampling of the cells from the outside, that is put into um, the the medium, the sample medium, and then we use the brush to. Uh, are you laughing at me for doing that? She's. I, I just was. Actually, I'm not. She, I am simula- I'm simulating a pap smear in here, which is kind of funny. Uh, not on me, but um, just kind of in the air. It's just in the air. She's doing an air pap, like an air guitar. So yeah, and so then you use the little cyto brush that goes into the into the little mascara brush. It does. It looks a tiny mascara. Yeah, a very tiny one. And then we use that to sample those endocervical cells and to put that into the medium, and we send it to our pathologist for evaluation. So that is what the pap smear really is and how it's done. When a woman's having a pap smear, you don't really know what's going on. You don't know what's going on down there. As doctors, we know what's going on and we assume, we kind of take, you know, liberties to think, oh, well, you know, it's obvious what's going on. It's not. Right. And and from the, and and we say You're talking about the weather. Oh, you're having your nervous conversation, you know, (laughs) waiting for the uncomfortable event to be over. So true. And and the other thing is, I think that what we do as physicians, and I will say this because, you know, when I say stuff like this, I'm usually talking about myself because I can't really talk very openly or, you know, clearly about anybody else. I'm just using myself as an example. Um, But what we tend to do is we tell people stuff that, that we think is useful or helpful, but doesn't really tell me anything about what the heck's going on. Like, you'll feel my hand, you know, or a little, or a little pressure, or you'll feel something very cold. This is the speculum. I'm touching you now. And you don't hear. Well, I don't. Yeah, I don't tend to say that. <laughs> but I just, I do think that, excuse me, you know, and we say that. I will tell you that the reason that I say that is to kind of help people feel more comfortable. But there are some people who are more comfortable with information and they want to know exactly what it entails or what's being done. So, um, you know, it's really nice if you don't know what it it doesn't even matter if you've never asked anybody before. There's nothing wrong with during the time that you're sitting in your doctor's office before you get ready to do your exam. If you've had one done 10 times, 20 times before. There's nothing wrong with saying, so what exactly are we going to do today? Because some doctors will tell you that beforehand. It so changes. this is what this is what we're going to do. Yeah. This is what it is. And I think many of us will do that at the initial visit, but mm. there then may be an assumption after that mm. that people know, and you don't. And then the things that we tell you during the exam are not always really helpful because we'll say, well, you'll feel my fingers or you'll feel some pressure or this. And that's not really telling you what we're doing. Um, and then even even worse is... After the samples are collected, then, you know, you're just waiting for your results. And people don't even always know necessarily what that means. What are they waiting on? That's yeah, right. exactly. And and then so we'll tell you, oh, the results will be back within a week or within 10 days. And we'll be we'll call you and let you know what they are. Um, but what that so so when that's being done, the goal is to sample those cells and to look for abnormalities that might suggest or that may be concerning for changes that are related to uh, HPV infection or precancerous or Mm. changes that would suggest an abnormality that may be concerning for cancer or potentially cancer. Yeah, what Dr. Owens was talking about earlier, how there are lots of different types of HPV, and there are some types that we call low-risk HPV that cause those lesions that aren't cancer precursors the um, genital warts and, and things like that. 
And then there are the types that we call high risk, which are able to um, cause cancer and cancer precursors. As a pathologist, when we look under the microscope at those cells that were obtained um, from the pap smear that was done by your uh, primary care physician or your gynecologist, um, whoever did it, um, we can uh, determine whether those cells are from are representing the changes of that low risk type or that high risk type. So, you know, that determine or no changes at all. If they're just normal looking cells, and that's fantastic, we report it as negative and you're done, you're on the regular screening schedule, which Dr. Owens will talk about. But if there are some changes that uh, resemble changes consistent with HPV, the human papilloma virus, we can tell your treating physician whether those changes are consistent with low-risk changes or low-grade changes or high-risk. And depending on which ones we see and relay that information back, your treating physician is going to treat you differently. That's going to start a cascade of events. So it's very much the pathologist knows that what I'm going to say is going to trigger a cascade of events or stop the decision tree at that time and have nothing else happen to the patient. Right. Uh, so it, it, it means a lot, you know, to be examining um, lots and lots of PAPs. This is a very high volume test because you you know it really makes a big difference to the health of women. Absolutely. Um, and so the other thing that I wanted to clarify, because we're talking about this human papillomavirus. So um, when you get infected with HPV, so um, people who have um, robust immune systems um, or an intact immune system, you can actually have exposure to the virus and your body can clear the virus. So you can have exposure and um, be infected with the virus and your body in response to exposure can actually clear the like clear if you had a virus. cold and you clear that virus absolutely exactly. and you eventually get over it and then you're not gonna you won't get the same cold again you'll get a different one but you don't necessarily get the same cold again um so that's just something else that i also wanted to clarify for people so just because you have had hpv and this is important because as we start talking about screening and some people may have questions about why the screening guidelines are what they are well, some of that has been as we've come to know more about the the process that leads up to cervical cancer, which is what we call dysplasia, cervical dysplasia. Um, as you go through those changes, we realize that some people have the ability to clear that virus and those changes will recede. So you can see some things that look concerning. Um, and then if you just do nothing and watch them or a little bit more conservative in your management as opposed to being aggressive and doing something to, to the lesions, that the body will take care of some of those. Now, the body has not been known to fight off cancer. Like once cancer is present, then you if, if cancer is going to go away, then that's not something that typically goes away on its own. You have to have some kind of treatment for it. But for some of those lower grade lesions, if it's due to initial exposure or what have you, then the body actually does have the ability through its immune system to fight that virus off. And you will see that those changes may spontaneously regress, which is kind of why the um, cervical cancer recommendations are, <clears throat> excuse me, what they are. But um, so first, let's talk about um, what risk factors there are. So we talked about this human papillomavirus and having infection with the virus, um, especially if it's with high risk types, um, increases your risk. Um, another thing that people may not know is smoking 
increases your risk. Another reason not to smoke. Like we needed another reason. Here it is. Yeah. And we didn't even harp on that when we're talking about New Year's resolutions and living healthy and all that. That was one of We're going to have a smoking cessation show coming up. We are. But I kind of had a little regret because we didn't get a chance to say that because it's a big deal. But, you know, most people think about. So. So it's no secret that smoking is linked to cancer. But I think most people think lung cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there may be people out there who did not know that um, smoking actually increases your risk of cervical cancer as well. And so um, I had a, a family member call me and they were like, hey, I got this pap smear and my pap smear was abnormal. And so I was just wondering. So the question that I had, they were, oh, they recommended this treatment. But what can I do? to decrease my risk for getting cancer because I don't want to get cervical cancer. And so I said to my family member, who shall remain nameless, "Um, are you still smoking? And there was this awkward silence. (laughs) Which is a yes. And it was, but why do you ask? And I said, well, you asked what you could do. And I said, well, one of the biggest things that you can do if you really want to turn this thing around is you need to let the cigarettes go. And, well, I mean, I only do it socially. I'm like, uh, it doesn't matter. Um, smoking increases your risk. You asked what you could do. Um, and so other than giving your body the best opportunity to fight it off through heightening your immune system, um, the only that's one thing that you really can yeah, do. Yeah, smoking really depresses the immune system. It does. Yeah. Um, and it also introduces a lot of other toxins right. to your body. It gets um, that, absorbed into your bloodstream, that, circulates that makes around. You, that that's can make right. you more uh, susceptible. Stop smoking, sure. please. So, yeah. So, Put it down. So if you are a person who's struggling, because I will not at all. I, I'm, I, I'm not a smoker. However, I do recognize that it's not as easy as just waving a wand and saying, quit smoking. Um, that's it's a very difficult thing, and it may take people multiple times to quit before they actually are able to really be done with it. Um, so not minimizing at all the difficulty they're in, but if you are one of those people who's been struggling with the decision to stop smoking um, and you need a reason, or um, if you're accumulating a list of reasons why to and why not to, you can put this one on your list. Um, and it's yet another reason for you to be encouraged if you are a person who has decided that smoking is not for you anymore or that you're going to stop or fight that habit. Um, this is another good reason why. So not just the lung cancer thing, but also um, it will decrease your risk for cervical cancer. Um, again, guys, we got this new fancy phone system and our lines are all wide open. Uh, the number is one 877 That's one 877 MPB ring. Um, We are talking about cervical cancer, gotten into a couple of risk factors, and we're going to keep giving you more of this good stuff coming up right after this. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. are back. This is Southern Remedy for Women. We are talking today about cervical cancer and cervical cancer screening um, and just trying to heighten cervical cancer awareness following along with January being Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Owens, and I'm here with Dr. Allie Brown. And um, we are taking your questions and answering any calls. Um, that number is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. That's one eight seven seven MPB ring. Um, if you don't have access to a phone and want to shoot us an email, you can feel free to do so um, by sending us an email to women at mpbonline.org. So um, we kind of had stopped halfway through um, going over or reviewing risk factors for cervical cancer. So we had talked about, if you're just tuning in, human papillomavirus, um, cigarette smoking as a risk factor. So again, as Dr. Brown said, yet another reason to stop smoking. Um, We talked about um, how HPV virus also contributes to cancers in men and is also a major player in head and neck cancers as well. We have some good friends who are head and neck folks, so we would be remiss if we didn't throw that in there. And that's head and neck cancer in men and women. Exactly, men and women. Um, and our dental friends would appreciate us sharing that information. So again, yet another good reason for you, if you have decided to stop smoking, a reason for you to continue along that vein. Um And if you are battling in your mind about deciding to put it down, that might be the thing that actually tips you over the edge and makes you decide to take the plunge and and try to cut down or quit. And my eyes are wandering to the production booth. Um, Anyway, that was just an inside (laughs) joke for uh, for our our folks. It's not Jay White. (laughs) No, it it is not. That would be for you, dear. Um, And so other things that can uh, increase your risk... Um, is having um, multiple sexual partners. So, and and again, that kind of makes sense. We talked about this being a function of um, a, a sexually transmitted infection, mm-hmm. um, the human papillomavirus. And so, of course, the more p- partners you have sex with, um, the more you increase your risk of exposure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there are some other um, unique circumstances um, that can increase a person's risk for cervical cancer. So, for example, um, people who are infected with the um, with HIV are the human immunodeficiency virus. So, HIV, which is the virus that causes AIDS, um, can also increase your risk for cervical cancer. And as a matter of fact, in women who are HIV positive, the presence of cervical cancer is actually an AIDS-defining disease because it um, basically shows that your immune system um, has allowed progression of the HPV virus. Um, so it shifts extent. you from HIV positive to frank AIDS. Yes, it is an AIDS-defining an AIDS-defining illness. Um, so, and it's one that's way more common than some of the other uh, AIDS-defining illnesses that um, people may be a little bit more familiar with. Um, so those are some of the things that can increase your risk um, for cervical cancer. Um, but again, uh, the, the first way to reduce your risk 
is to be screened. And again, if there's nothing else you guys get from this, pap smear is the screening test for cervical cancer. And that is the primary key to prevention. Um, And so let's talk a little bit about screening. And um, the screening can sometimes get a little tricky. So I just want to make sure that everybody is clear on this. Because the recommendations have changed. They do. Yeah. and they, It used to be kind of like you had it every year, the end. Exactly. You know, that's pretty easy to and remember, it's not right? that way anymore. <laughs> anymore. It's real complicated. We have to have an app for it now. It's crazy. <laughs> um, so so the first thing is, because it used to be that that was kind of like the introduction. It was like the rite of passage into womanhood, right? Like you, you had to go to the OBGYN as a young woman to get your pap smear. Um, and while it is still very important for, um, adolescents and young women to have an interaction with a woman's health provider, um, as with respect to pap smears or, um, screening for cervical cancer, the current recommendations is that people under the age of 21 do not need to be screened. So no screening. This is irrespective of sexual activity. Yeah, it used to be at the onset of sexual activity. Absolutely. But that's um, changed. Yes. So now it does not matter. Even if you are sexually active and under the age of 21, no screening is recommended, you know, in, in the general population. Of course, if there, if you have other comorbidities, there may be a reason why you're in a special category. But in general, the recommendations are no screening under the age of 21. So there. Um, and then it kind of branches off for the folks who are the 20 somethingers. And so from 21 to age 29, um, the recommendations is that you should have cytology, which is that pap smear that we talked about alone every three years. Now that's provided that it's normal. You know, if you if you do the pap yeah. smear and your cytology is normal, then you wouldn't need another one. And cytology means the pap smear. Kind right. Of. So if the pap smear is normal, then just cytology alone every three years. Um, and then in the 30, so here's a, and the group gets bigger, 30 to 65. That's a wide range, right? Um, then the recommendations are HPV and cytology, what we call co-testing. So that means that they actually check for the presence of these human papillomaviruses, the types that we mentioned earlier. Remember, some of them are high-risk types, which are known to be cancer-causing or associated with cancer. And then there are low-risk types, which do not cause cancers but can be responsible for other conditions. So from 30 to 65, the recommendations are that you get the pap smear along with human papillomavirus co-testing. And that's now, every five years if it remains normal. Um, that's the preferred. But, <clears throat> but for for our listening audience, that is not a separate encounter for you. That test, the, the material that your physician is going to send for that additional HPV test, is got, they, re, they get it at the same time as when they do the pap smear. So it's not like you have to come in right. for a separate appointment. No. It's not a blood test. It's just they collect a little bit more of the sample like they use for the pap smear and they submit it for HPV testing where they look for the actual genetic material of the virus. Yeah. And so that so that so it doesn't impact you very much, but you won't know that it's happening. You want to ask. Absolutely. And so here's the thing. So that co-testing, that's the preferred thing. And that's on a five year. So you can actually get a five year hiatus if everything looks good. Um, Another acceptable alternative is just to keep doing 
you know, normal cytology, normal pap smear process every three years. You see why it's kind of, it can be, this <laughs> right. can be really confusing for people right. who, you know, aren't doing this all the time. Like, not even about physician things, but if you just, it, it's a lot to, to remember. Keep up with. Yeah, if it you is. have to do something every year, I feel like it's easier to remember. It is a little easier to remember. However, you should still go see your gynecologist every year, right? Absolutely. So remember that yeah, and let, your, and let just, them take, keep track of it. Right? Let me just say, because we're more than just pap smears. That's right. So we are more than just thing. pap smears. Aww, Absolutely. Were you we feeling cover, like you were just a pap smear? We cover way more than that. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I have students and, and people who are interested in medicine or who don't know much about OBGYN and they want to come and they're like, oh, well, let me shadow you and see what you do. And at the end of the day, invariably, the most common thing that I hear is... Wow, I thought all you did was pap smears all day. And I'm like, actually, no. What an interesting we, job. Yeah, we do. <laughs> I mean, we do a whole lot more than that. But I think that that's kind of the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Especially when it was when people were getting them done every year and the recommendation was to get it done annually, et cetera. I think that that's kind of what people started thinking that it was all about. And while it's very important, um, there's a lot of other important information that we cover um, in those women's uh, health visits. Um, and I think um, an- another thing that's come out of this now that we are not recommending people get a pap smear every year, per se, the next piece is how do you make the most out of those women's health visits? And I think we will have an opportunity, hopefully, um, to talk about that again um, on another show. But um, again, guys, the number one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 Jay's trying to take us to break, and so we will come back after this and after this little hiatus, and we will finish up with screening, and then we'll um, kind of talk a little bit more about um, cervical cancer. So stay with us, and we will be right back in just a few shakes. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And we're back at Southern Remedy for Women, the show all about addressing uh, issues of health and wellness from a woman's perspective. Um, your host and co-host, Dr. Michelle Owens and Dr. Allie Brown, are in the studio today, and we are taking your calls and answering questions related to cervical cancer. Or if you happen to have just another um, unrelated women's health issue, our phone lines are open. As a matter of fact, we've got a couple of callers on the line, so we are going to go to the phone lines and hear from Joan, who's calling from Biloxi. Hey, Joan. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Thanks for Absolutely. calling. Absolutely. I have a question that uh, I'm, I'm not sure if there's any truth to it or not, but the woman who has uh, relations with uncircumcised males more at risk for cervical cancer? Well, that's an interesting question. So 
men who are not circumcised are 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 at risk for developing cancer of the penis. So uncircumcised men are virtually all protected from developing cancer. It's rare for a circumcised man to develop HPV-related cancer of the penis. Because the foreskin actually provides um, a protection, a covering, if you will. Um, so it's it's not as though the, the tissues of the head of the penis are exposed in the same way. Well, the foreskin, actually the men with the foreskin have a higher incidence of getting cancer. Oh, that's because there's more tissue there. Now, that being said... Men still carry the HPV virus whether or not they're circumcised. So the chances of a woman getting cancer from a man, it can occur whether or not they are circumcised. So the man it's is more likely to develop, although it's still rare, is more likely to develop the cancer of the penis if he is uncircumcised. However, a woman uh, can develop or can uh catch the HPV virus from a man whether or not. It's just that the man does not manifest and progress to cancer very frequently if he's circumcised. When they take the foreskin off, which is primarily right. where it's affected. Now, t- talking about why men who have a foreskin are more likely to develop cancer, this has yucky words. Everyone, People are giving me eyes. They're walking down the hall. But um, there is a tendency for them to retain um, skin cells and sweat and things like that. This is a really pleasant topic, but it's true. Under the foreskin, and it is thought that this contributes to irritation and maybe concentration of the virus. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So circumcised men um, don't have those issues, and um, it is thought that it's not entirely sure, but it is thought that that uh, eliminates or greatly reduces almost to zero their chances of developing cancer. But the chance of a woman getting cancer from a man exists whether he is circumcised or not. Because it's really just about exposure to the virus. So it's not that the virus is in higher quantities in the foreskin. It's just um, about some of the other unintended consequences that are related to the presence of the foreskin that may increase the risk. But I don't think we've really worked out exactly how or why um, that that occurs more commonly in men. There are some hypotheses, but we don't know what I just said. Mm -hmm. Thanks for your question, Joan. Well, thank you for answering a difficult question. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much for calling. All right. So um, I think we have, um, next we have uh, Meredith, I think, who's calling from Alabama. Meredith. Yeah, hi. Hey, Meredith. Uh, My question is, my my daughter's pediatrician has been mentioning the, getting the HPV vaccine for my teenage daughter, and I don't know if that's a good idea or not. Yeah. Meredith, I'm sorry. Could you could you repeat your question one more time? Uh, my daughter's pediatrician has mm-hmm. been recommending my daughter get the HPV vaccine. Uh-huh. She's 14, and I don't know if that's a good idea or not. Oh, so, um, and thank you so much for that question. Um, I think that you probably have, uh, there are probably lots of parents who are listening who have similar concerns. Um, the So what exactly is your, and, and I want to ask you this, what's, what exactly is your concern or what things about the concept of vaccination against HPV are you most concerned about? I don't have an issue with vaccines per se, but mm-hmm. I've heard some things about, I think it's Gardasil maybe. Mm-hmm. That's, I've heard some, some negative things about those side effects. So, um, so 
the vaccine, um, so Gardasil is one of them, and there are several different um, HPV vaccines there. I think as as we've learned more about HPV viruses, as we have been able to determine that there are more that are associated with cancer, um, what we've seen is that they started out small, just being able to attack two of the most common. Then you saw the quadrivalent viruses are the ones that, I mean, the quadrivalent vaccine, which uh, attacked four uh, different subtypes of the virus. And now there's a non-avalent one, which actually will um, address nine different types of viruses. Um, and those are currently on the recommended list for um, children ages, I think, starting as low as nine all the way up now to even in the 40s. Um, so I think that the decision whether or not to vaccinate your child against human papillomavirus is a very personal one. However, um, the there are some side effects and um, there are very clear recommendations and guidelines about who people, who the people are who should not or who might need to talk to their doctor or consider uh, maybe not having the vaccine. For example, if they have certain reactions or if they've had certain uh, types of reactions after vaccines in the past. Um, I will tell you this, that with any medication, there's a risk of side effects and vaccines are really no different. Um, there are times when vaccines can uh, can can create by their administration. People can have um, some very um, unnerving and some severe side effects um, as a result of that. And many times those are um, unpredictable. Um, and though, so that's a risk with any vaccine that you have. And I think that it's really important for parents to sit down and to talk to their providers. And that's why I asked that question. What are the things that you're most concerned about? And and some of the side effects that may be listed um, may not be very pleasant, but the other pieces that fortunately most of them are very rare. Um, and so it, the greatest likelihood is probably that you would not experience one of those um, significant side effects. Um, but I think that it's something that people have to take into consideration and really needs to be a personal decision. Um, I personally, as a physician and also as a mother, um, advocate for um, vaccines um, and will, va will vaccinate my children when they reach the appropriate age because the idea of being able to decrease their risk of cancer um, and, and decrease the risk of my sons to be able to contract a virus or to spread it is important enough for me, and to me it justifies the risk, and I feel confident in the safety of the vaccines. However, that is a personal uh, decision, and I think that's one that every parent should really mull over and take seriously. Um, and, you know, don't make the decision to pull that, you know, to pull that trigger until you feel very confident um, that, that you are making the best decision in the best interest of your child. But it's definitely something to talk about with your physician and not really to listen to Facebook or something. You know, oh, yeah, I feel yeah. like people <laughs> hear this, these stories and stuff, and sometimes they believe social media more than they believe their pediatrician. So definitely take Absolutely. that into account. You know the facts. It's worth. It's definitely worth researching. Um, and I think that that's something that's a very good question. But to have a vaccine that can prevent cancer, I think is amazing. Um, but thanks so much, Meredith, for your call. And I hope that you and the rest of Alabama is recovering after that god-awful national championship but we'll talk about that later um southern remedy for women <laughs> is produced by, by jay white um i think jason klein was our call screener um i'm your host uh dr michelle owens and i'm here with dr Allie brown and we are signing off npr's uh here now is next
on MPB Think Radio.